Welcome to the Biblical Demand podcast. Our podcast is dedicated to answering critical and difficult questions about Jesus, the Bible, and the Christian faith. You can also switch to the video version of this podcast on YouTube and the channel is called Biblical Demand. In the Gospel of John chapter 8 verse 32, Jesus said, "And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free." Amen. So let's get started. My family are from Gujarat, but um, my great grandfather moved to East Africa, Kenya, in the late 1800s, and so my dad was born in Kenya. My mom was born in India, but most of uh, my family tradition sort of goes back towards Kenya. And in the 60s, you know, there was a lot of instability in the East African countries, Tanzania, Uganda. So a lot of the Indian families moved to the United Kingdom. So <clears throat> when we moved to the United Kingdom, I was about two, three months old, and uh, families traditionally, typically, always searched out for areas to live in where there were good schools. Now, these good schools meant that sometimes you lived dispersed from other Indians and other Gujaratis. So in the seventies and eighties. Uh, I'm giving away my age here slightly. Um, Indian families on the weekends used to meet at a Hindu temple, so this is where they would socialize, catch up with their culture, cuisine, language. They didn't. They didn't want to miss out on that side of life in the midst of sending their schools to uh, their children to good schools. So growing up in the United Kingdom. my family i can say was classical orthodox hindu you know we had a dedicated room in the house for our house shrine um so this meant every morning when you wake up before you drink water or anything you have a bath you pray in your personal prayer kit then you go downstairs into that special dedicated room and pray there for 15 20 minutes and then you have water breakfast and then you go to school similar practice on return from school you go into the house shrine or what we typically traditionally call ghar mandir and we pay our respects to the various images we were worshiping and then we do homework before dinner again at 6 o'clock we'd be with the family would gather in the house shrine you know pray worship and then we would eat then the family may watch tv or whatever read and again before bedtime we all get together and pray so our practice you know when you ask a hindu typically you know you don't say what do you believe you say what is your sadhana so what is your method so my family traditionally going back comes from a a bhakti sampraday uh, an orthodox bhakti sampraday vaishnava sampraday which simply means very dedicated to devotion alongside dharma which is rituals and and the knowledge of uh, scripture gnan which is the knowledge of the soul and the body and the idea and vairagya which is detachment so across all hindu spectrums across all hindu denominations you'll find every single denomination or doctrine have these four fundamental principles dharma gnan vairagya and bhakti so ours was more bhakti so this was my life growing up you know i went to a very 
I'd say, traditionally Christian school. Um, and on the weekends, it was very Hindu, my life. And when you come home, it was very Hindu. And in our particular denomination, we believed that the guru uh, was the incarnation of God on earth. He was the vessel for God. So we worshipped him. We meditated on him. We prayed to him and believed that through him, we had access to the supreme Godhead that we worshipped. So going forward in my life, when I was 16, I was uh, given the charge of the youth activities in the temple in Northwest London. And the guru had come from India at that time. This is 1988. And I was asked to speak in the congregation on a Hindu scripture. And for whatever reason, I spoke very well. Everyone was happy. The guru was extremely happy. And traditionally, once you give a speech in front of the guru and the congregation, you go and bow at his feet. You take his blessings. So I went uh, to his uh, asana, or the best translation is throne, where he was seated, and uh, bowed to him. And he said, you'll be a very good monk, a very good sadhu. Uh, you, should, you should become a priest. And for me, you know, Dhiman, it was like, oh gosh, God is asking me to become a priest. So I felt elated, I felt excited, I felt, wow, my purpose, destiny, everything will be fulfilled because I, I know what I need to do because God's telling me to do it. So long story short, you know, I became quite radical about being a monk, um, quite fanatical. <laughs> my parents were not so happy because the vows of renunciation in this particular denomination were very strict. Um, celibacy, not only that, but you're not allowed to talk to women. You're not allowed to talk to your parents ever again. You don't get paid any money. You can't touch money. If you touch money accidentally, you have to wash your hands 25 times. So it was a very monastic lifestyle, and yet we were called to live in the world amidst people. But the vows were very monastic. But I left still after the age of 19, you know, I completed my A-levels and I went to India to train in the monastery in Gujarat. It's a beautiful campus, 250 acres. And there, Dhiman, it's straightforward, very intense spiritual practices, lots of study, academia, and uh, lots of community. So, you wake up every morning at 4.30, quarter to five, have a cold water bath, say your prayers. You get together in the main mandir, the main temple of the campus. You worship with everyone. Then you do chores for an hour. You clean the grounds, you clean the toilets, or you help in the kitchen. And then your lectures and sermons start from nine o'clock. And you study different Hindu doctrines. For us, mainly that particular denomination we were following. And you study world religions as well. So it's a six year intense um, procedure of academia, spiritual discipline. You know, you fast five, six times a month. Uh, that's 36 hours without food and water. You know, you clean the temple grounds. It doesn't matter where you're from, how educated you are. You do all the menial 
tasks. In my first month in 1991 in November, I was upstairs in the mandir and there were 150 of us training at the same time. So we were singing the arti. You may have seen this where they light the dior and they, you know, circumnavigate the images within the inner sanctuary with the dior. So the bells were just ringing away, the drums were beating and I was prostrating to the images. And then I suddenly, it wasn't audible, but a sense that someone just said something to me. And it was two questions. So this voice said, have you made the right decision? One, are you in the right place? And this, you know, demon, it shook me. I thought, I, I stood for a few seconds and I still remember this to this day that that moment I stood and I looked over the balcony of this temple. It was a very tall mandir. And for a split second, this happened within 10 seconds. I'm, I'm telling you, this happened within 10 seconds. And in these 10 seconds, I thought, what have I done? You know, I've left my family. I've left England. I've left my career. You know, but then like in the Christian world, you have Satan, you know, that stops you in your destiny. In the Hindu world, you have Maya, you know, a delusion or a, a force or, you know, a force that prevents you from going into your God-given destiny. So I thought it was Maya and I suppressed it. But then during those training years, what I saw bugged me quite a bit. And that was that we were doing all of these practices externally, like these rituals, waking up early, worshipping corporately five, five times a day, fasting, reading, chanting, and yet, I didn't see much inner transformation. I saw priests who were priests for 30, 40 years. But as you say in Hindi or Sanskrit, Sobhav, the core tendencies of the inner world were very much the same, you know. So the guru came to the training center um, in December of 1991 and I was one of his favorites. So I always had access to his uh, room and I could speak to him personally, privately, whenever I wanted, which you know, I was grateful for throughout my whole life as a priest. And I said to him that, look, I don't see any change in me, in my inner world. I'm doing all this, you know, living this monastic lifestyle, reading, chanting, meditating, thinking, worshiping. He said, it'll take time. You, you think too much, stop thinking. <laughs> and uh, you know, for a split second, I thought, what's the difference between not thinking, faith and brainwashing, you know? But I, I had a lot of affection for him. I believed him to be my God and I continued. So I finished the five, six years of training. I'll be honest, I had doubts time and again whether it was the right path. But I suppressed them because I believed that they were just from the evil one. I fell sick quite a lot in that time in India. You know, I got malaria five times, um, brain malaria twice. So that took a, an emotional impact on me. 
So by 96, 97, in, for two years, I, I spent in Mumbai, actually. And there my health got really bad and I met the guru again. And this time I said, look, India just doesn't suit me. Can I just go back home to my parents, you know? And he was quite annoyed and he said, no, 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 no. You know, by now I was in orange robes. I had a shaven head. I was a full-fledged sadhu, renounced, as we say, tyagi, vairagi, left, decided. And in that world, you know, once you've left, everything that's behind is burnt in your mind. It's all burnt. So he was very upset when I said this. And he said, you must, you know, die in these robes. Your destiny is to die in these robes. He said, I'll place you in London, though. You know, and um, we have a beautiful temple in London. You stay there and develop the whole of Europe and Russia. So the organization was very um, elaborately based across North America, Canada, Middle East, Africa, India, but not in Europe. UK, yes. So I felt excited. You know, this is a great opportunity. In 1997, I landed in London. There were 16 priests in London in the temple. And I thought, great, there's something to build here, you know. So like many people in many faiths, when you have pain or buried questions, you get busy to avoid asking those tough questions to yourself. So I just got busy. I was on a plane at one stage, literally once a week. I was traveling 60, 90,000 miles a year into Europe. Also America, I was speaking a lot in the US and um, things started to grow. I, I built a few centers, uh, a, a temple in Portugal, process of one in Paris, in Antwerp, a small temple, and slowly developed about you know 15 to 18 centers across the whole of Europe. So things were very successful. And the congregation was built up. They started tithing back into London, into their own temples. It was growing really fast. So very successful in a very short period of time. Took the organization to Russia for the first time in its history. You know, introduced various Indian ambassadors to the organization across Europe. Diplomats in the United Nations. Diplomats at The Hague in Holland. So in every front, from center developing to congregation building to PR, you know, everything was successful. But, you know, Diman, as you know, you know, success also gets monotonous, right? You get bored of that, too. And then your inner world starts to cry out again with all the questions and the doubts. So I thought, you know, I'm still feeling this vacuum, you know, this emptiness, this hollowness. What is it? And so I thought, let's let's go into other Hindu scriptures again, you know. We did them in the training center. So I thought, let me read the Gita again, read Vivekanand's works, Sri Arvinda, you know, his transcendental mind, his um, letters. Um, and I read other works as well. So amidst all my travels, I started doing another three hours of reading a day to see if I could find something in there that would give me that sense of deep peace satisfaction, nourishment that I had imagined in my head. 
but it just didn't work out. You know, Diman, I, 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 everything was successful externally. I had a very senior role. Um, God had given me a talent to speak, so that was working out really well. You know, uh, traveling all over the world. Um, a lot of people trusted me, which I still am grateful for today. Um, but you know, this deep dissatisfaction just didn't leave me and my health continued to have issues. Anyway, I had a very small uh, congregation in Italy, in Rome. There was about nine people there. And I went to Rome for the first time and they took me to the Vatican and to the Sistine Chapel. And the in the Sistine Chapel, the Swiss guards gave me a special place to sit um, because it's flooded with you know men and women and we couldn't come into close proximity. So he put me in a special section, ironically under the painting of the last judgment by Michelangelo. So the Sistine Chapel, you, you probably know the ceiling is by Michelangelo and the side paintings are by Botticelli. If you're looking um, from the end of the Last Judgment painting, on your left, you have the stories of Jesus. On the right, you have the stories of uh, John the Baptist. And I remember this vividly. Um, this was, gosh, 20, 20 years ago now, if not more. I looked at the stories of Jesus and I said to myself, this makes sense. It's so simple, you know. And I don't know why I said those words to myself, but I said them. Then we went back upstairs into the main cathedral and I, and the tour guide took us to the La Pieta, which is Michelangelo's sculpture of Mary and Jesus on her lap after he was taken down from the cross. I mean, it's a fascinating piece of architecture uh, or sculpture rather of art. Um, it's, it's one piece and he did this when he was only 24. But I found that there was something more attractive beyond the actual statue. You know, I, I, I felt a tug on my heart, you know, something pulling. I found it very attractive. And for a second, I blurted out to my colleague priest, I'd love a poster of this on the back of my office door. And he looked at me with a very uh, stern and concerned look. Do you know what robes you're wearing here? Um, you know, after that, you know, something interesting happened. I continued my work passionately. I continued to please the guru, travel America, Europe, wherever, study hard. But then I just got this fascination to, to the person of Jesus, the cross. So, you know, I, I did 400 trips into Europe and most European cities have churches around the airports. So even when the plane is landing, when I'm looking out the window, naturally my eyes would just find the Christian cross, you know. And I just found the cross attractive. I couldn't articulate why, but I just found it very, very attractive. So in the midst of my talking, building these centers, building the congregation, in my time off, I used to go and visit churches across various countries. Nobody asked me questions. I simply said, I want to learn 
from these Christians? What do they do? How do they do their operations? How do they manage their organizations? No one questioned me because I just said I'm doing it for the sake of learning. But there was something definitely attractive. Anyway, this, you know, along with my lots of traveling to different parts of the world, some beautiful parts of the world, whether it's the tulip gardens in Kukunov or Switzerland, Swiss Alps, you know, or Grand Canyon in, in, in America, I just felt that God must be much bigger and more beautiful than the guru that I'm worshipping or these images in this confined space, you know. He must be much bigger. So in my speeches and talks, I started to speak of a different kind of God without making it very clear, you know. I, I pushed the boundaries a bit in my theology. In 2007, I was speaking at the National Convention in Orlando, in America, and I was asked to give the keynote speech, and um, I was asked to speak on a particular Hindu verse. So I quoted the verse, and then I spoke 10 minutes on whatever I felt, you know, I had experienced up until that town time through my travels, visiting churches, you know, and thinking. And I got a standing ovation, you know. I sat down back in my seat after my talk next to the priest, who's a friend of mine at the time. He said, wow, how did you interpret that verse like that? It's fascinating, you know. I've never heard it like that. And I didn't say anything, but to my mind, I said, if only you knew it had nothing to do with Hinduism, you know. But the problem for me was much deeper, right? People would travel hundreds of miles to hear me speak. They would want my autograph after I've given a talk in a convention, which is fair enough. That's just kind of them. You know, it's their generosity to want my autograph. It's their generosity and their kindness to have a photograph with me. But my inner world was in a dichotomy because I didn't believe the things I was teaching. And people rushed to hear me speak. So many a time I started saying before my talk, please don't record this talk. And yet people would still record it, you know. So that that really hurt that people are trusting you, that people believe in you. In Norway once, I asked my congregation, do you believe every word I say? They said, well, yeah, look, you've, you've, you've sacrificed your life. You're not married. You have the vow of celibacy. You don't touch money. You're not being paid. You do all this sacrificial work. You must be telling the truth. So I thought for a few minutes, that's interesting that I can create a persona of holiness, sacrifice, and by that, you will believe everything I tell you. So that kind of affected me quite a lot inside, that people were trusting me, believing every word I said when I was struggling. Anyway, fast forward to 2010, my health got really bad. Um, my doctors in London, I, I, you know, I'm very thankful to the organization. They took me to the best doctors in the world. They really did. Whether it's London's Harley Street 
or Manhattan or Chicago, Houston, wherever. I, I always got the best treatment. So 2010, I was sent to Jacksonville, Florida, where there's the Mayo Clinic. It's the world's number one clinic. After that, there's nothing much except Jesus, if you know Jesus, that is. So by this time, I had about 500 people in Europe. I had a team of 150 full-time PA, a core team of five people based out of London. So I said to the core team and the PA, handle all of Europe for me for a while while I go and sort my health out. You know, it was really getting bad. My doctor in London sent the file over to the Mayo Clinic. And in the clinic, I went there. There were five doctors. You know, each of them were chairman of the department. They looked at my thick file and said, you're only 39 years old. And why do you have all these problems? Two of those doctors became very close friends. One of the doctors is still a dear, dear friend of mine today. And Dr. Dorsha, he's in, he lives on the East Coast of North America. Anyway, Dhiman, that was a 10-month uh, stint, if you want to call it that, in the clinic. On the weekends, I used to preach and teach around the North America centers. But it was in these 10 months that, you know, what was brewing uh, over the last 20 years began to articulate in my mind. And um, I came back to London on October 2011, 10 months later. I thought, let me go and see the guru because, you know, even though spiritually, emotionally, I'm just starving, he's still my God and my guru and my father. So I went to Mumbai where he was in December 2011 and things just weren't right. I was getting some strange vibes from the other priests as I entered the temple. One of the priests discreetly told me that there's um, something going on about your theology and about your speeches and people are not so happy. I said, well, the guru's always been on my side. <laughs> All I need is a private audience and, you know, that's it. I'll, I'll speak to him and whatever he has to say to me, I'll listen and then I'll say sorry or whatever. But I wasn't allowed a private audience. Um, senior priests came in. Anyway, long story short, in that meeting was very tense. It was very intense. And that's where I decided to leave priesthood for good. Um, the guru said, fine, you leave. You know, he wasn't happy with my theology more than anything. And he gave me two conditions. Never give a speech again in your life, which was the first one. I said, fine. You know, I'm not really bothered about that because I don't believe a word I'm saying anyway. And the second thing was, don't talk to anyone you know in the whole 20 years and we will not let anyone talk to you. I said, fine, because in the back of my mind, you know, I thought if I ever did leave, it has to be a clean cut. You know, there, there can't be any tentacles attached in there because it's not nice. Once a priest leaves, there's a lot of shame and guilt um, that's, you know, indirectly thrown on him by the sort of community He's not hated, but, you know, there's a lot of baggage that's thrown his way. So I thought even if I do leave over the years, it has to be a complete cut, you know. So I left on December 27th. They gave me two pairs of trousers, two shirts. I had my British passport. My parents had moved 
to the Middle East by this time. So a friend in London said, why don't you stay at our home, at our, at, in my hotel? I said, sure. He said, look, come here and we'll find out a way to get you a job after 20 years of priesthood. How does that work? You know, I had met prime ministers and presidents and industrialists. You can't write all that on the CV. <laughs> you know, as a priest, it's fine. But in the world, you know, people don't really care. So, you know, I thought at this stage, this is now December, January 2012, I'd get married, get a find a simple, quiet job and live a peaceful life. I was disappointed with my spiritual search, to be honest. You know, I had done a 2000 mile pilgrimage across India, you know, bathed in the Ganga, Yamuna, Saraswati. I climbed Mount Girnar in Gujarat three times to pay homage to Dattatrai. That's gosh, 10,000 steps, <laughs> you know, so much like Ram Janmabhumi, Krishna Janmabhumi, all these spiritual places. I didn't find anything, you know. So I always thought I'd have a spiritual dimension to my life, but then I thought that's it. Anyway, two weeks later, I was walking to the station my friend said for four weeks, no, don't think about work, job, just wander around the city of London on your own. So I was walking to the station and suddenly, you know, literally my head turned 90 degrees. There was nothing there, you know, that, that, that I wanted to see. But there was a tiny church down this very quiet road. And I thought, hmm, let's go and see. It might have these beautiful paintings like in Rome, you know. I didn't know that all churches don't look like Rome. <laughs> and so I went down this road and it was around 11.15 a.m. on a Sunday. And there were people at the entrance of the church welcoming people in. I thought, this is strange. And they had these incredible smiles, you know, as if they had eaten a banana sideways. They were like laughing and this love was just oozing off them and I found that quite creepy <laughs> and um, I walked past them and as soon as I entered into the church the presence of God just fell on me so beautifully I felt this tangible blanket of peace and that voice after 20 years came back again it wasn't audible but that sense that someone said you're home that was it you're home and so I went inside and I sat upstairs in the pew and I had never heard, you know, worship on guitars and drums before in my life, but it was beautiful. The sermon made sense. I didn't go down for prayer because I was too shy. I went back to my hotel room and I sat on the corner of my bed. I went to that room just last year again uh, to see the room. So I sat on the bed and I, gave my life to Christ in that instant, which was fascinating for me because nobody debated with me. You know, I was a very good debater. I wouldn't succumb to the loss of an argument that easily as a priest, um, not out of any anarchy or rebellion or arrogance. I just had too many questions when I was a priest. So people often found me challenging. They found me disruptive. They found me, 
you know, unorthodox, unconventional, or whatever you want to call it, someone who keeps rocking the boat. Here, no one challenged me, and I gave my life to Christ. Then I got water baptized, and several months later, and then eight months later, I was filled with God's Spirit in a small prayer meeting. It was just the most fascinating moment of my life because I had no job. I didn't know where I was going to live at this time. I had no money, just about had food. And I went to this prayer meeting and I just put my hands out like this. The, the leader of the meeting said, just keep your heart open. And she came and put a hand on my shoulder and the spirit of God came and filled my whole being. My goodness, I had this incredible joy. Now, I've done laughter classes. I know what that is of the world. It wasn't that. It was something so different. And then I realized what people like Vivekananda and Arvinda were searching for. You know, Arvinda went into silence for 17 years. I went to his ashram in Pondicherry. He had really pressed into the world of meditation. When this encounter happened for me, I realized what I got through grace, they were trying through karma. And then I basically said, yeah, Jesus is alive and this is real and I'm going to chase him because this is not just a fancy idea. This is real. This is accessible every day. You know, the peace and joy of Christ is available every day. So that's been my journey. 